Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I'm going to read from the court records of the West Memphis Three. These are affidavits. Not a lot of people have read through these. They haven't been published as far as I know. They are on the old Callahan site. There'll be three affidavits. They'll sell, they are self-explanatory. The people who they are, they will explain themselves. Glory Shettles, Scott Davidson, and then Dr. George Woods. So I'll read those into the record. And then I'll also include some other material. I got. I can read stuff from the OTO. I can read John Douglas in the West Memphis Three. Also, information was given to me from Dave McGowan. And I posted the show for that I did with Dave McGowan on the Ed Opperman report on William Ramsey Investigates. So you can go back and listen to that if you're interested. We did about 90-minute show. And I'll just see how this goes. Uh, I don't know how far I'll get along, but... Uh, these are, I think, are important to uh, explaining other positions of people who saw things firsthand going back at that time in the mid to late 90s. These affidavits are dated around 2000, 2001, but they explain things earlier. So uh, you can actually look these up if you want, and uh, they're all referenced. So the first one is from Glory Shettles. So her name is spelled G-L-O-R-I. And then Shettles, S-H-E-T-T-L-E-S. Uh, and these are affidavits, so they're legal documents. So if people lie or get caught lying on these affidavits, they can get uh, criminally punished, criminally uh, punished for perjury, typically like two to five year sentence. Affidavit of Glory Shettles. I, Glory Shettles, declare as follows. One. In 1993 and 1994, I served as an investigator for Damian Eccles as his, and his trial counsel in the capital proceedings against him in Jonesboro, Arkansas. It was my understanding that my responsibilities included investigating and preparing for penalty phase in the event Mr. Eccles was found guilty of the capital crimes with which he was charged. Two, my responsibilities in Mr. Eccles' case also included meeting with him on a weekly basis and attending to some of the pre-trial and trial proceedings. During Mr. Eccles' incarceration at the, in the Monroe County Jail, we met weekly for one to three hours that afforded me an opportunity to observe Mr. Eccles' behavior and functioning over time. Monroe jail staff provided me with a small room for our meetings and allowed him to meet me with me without restraints or barriers. I had substantially more contact with Mr. Eccles than any other member of his defense team. Three, although my inexperience prevented me from recognizing many of the symptoms of mental illness that I observed at the time of Mr. Eccles' trial, I now understand the implications and relevance of the behaviors I observed. Since my work on Mr. Eccles' case, I have investigated numerous capital cases, including mental health-related claims, attended local, state, and national training seminars on investigating and presenting mitigation and other mental health-related claims, and become knowledgeable about behaviors that are characteristic of mental illness. My interactions with Mr. Eccles allowed me to witness his episodic loss of contact with reality his inability to focus on trial proceedings or understand their significance, his lack of insight into the nature of his mental illness, his unpredictable and rapid mood swings, including his profound depression, his bizarre and paranoid beliefs, and his grandiose delusions. Four, Mr. Eccles had dramatic mood swings from deep sobbing to laughing hysterically and giggling without any cause for the change. The switch from despair to mania was immediate and complete. It could, not, it could occur several times during one meeting. Mr. Eccles cried during almost every meeting, once collapsing onto my shoulders in utter despair that was beyond the legal situation. 
His depression had been with him a long time and it affected everything he thought and did. Mr. Eccles was so deeply sad that he felt hopeless and lost when it came to his case. He was not able to maintain an active interest in legal developments and was not able to overcome his depression to be motivated to help in his own defense. He discussed suicide repeatedly and believed that he could overcome death because he was different from people. Five, Mr. Eccles also had grandiose and persecutory delusions that extended to his trial counsel. He believed he was an outsider to whom no one could relate. He believed he was an alien and discussed it with his mother from time, from the time when he was a small child of only three or four. It was not an analogy. It was a concrete belief that he was from another world, another planet. He was consumed with the belief that he was not of this world and talked about it on numerous occasions. Six, when Mr. Eccles met new people, he believed they always thought he was strange. He believed that his peers, teachers, and strangers were against him. He analyzed everything that was said to him and attributed special meaning to their words. He was especially suspicious of his trial counsel and since they did not like him, were afraid of him and believed he worshipped the devil. Mr. Eccles was preoccupied with his paranoia to the exclusion of knowing what was actually happening in the courtroom. He constantly scanned the audience, the cameras, witnesses, and attorneys and believed that they were looking at him in a special way. But I could clearly tell they were not even looking at him. I was unable to persuade him that others were not watching him with the intensity he believed. Mr. Eccles held on to his beliefs, regardless of evidence to the contrary. 7. Much of Mr. Eccles' behavior was unpredictable and bizarre. He had bizarre topics of conversation that made him laugh inappropriately. At many other times, he lost contact with reality and acted as if he were in a trance, staring but not seeing. He had difficulty sleeping, looked haggard and exhausted, and felt physically ill frequently. He rocked, pulled his hair, bit his fingers and nails, and bit his lower lip. Mr. Eccles also wrote me notes or letters that showed his bizarre and psychotic thinking, depression, and hallucinations. Eight, at the time I accepted the assignment in Mr. Eccles' case, I had little experience in investigating any stage of capital trial litigation, including penalty phase preparation on behalf of the defense. I was not familiar with the legal standards for claims related, related to mental health of the defendant, such as the competency to stand trial and his two-pronged test requiring that the defendant understand legal proceedings against him and be able to aid and assist counsel in a rational manner. I also did not know how to determine if a defendant's behavior and functioning were signs and symptoms of mental illness that could indicate a defendant was incompetent to stand trial. I also did not know the range of mental health and social history records that would be relevant for any determination about the defendant's mental state. I did not appreciate how to document the origin, nature, severity, and consequences of mental illness by obtaining collateral information from family members, peers, and others who had known the defendant over time. I did request the Social Security Administration to provide me with any and all recordings related to Mr. Eccles' disability determination. However, they were not received prior to trial. Under penalty of perjury under the laws of the United States of the state of Tennessee, I swear that the foregoing is true and correct and executed this 27th day of December 2000 in the county of Shelby, signed by Glory Shuttles. And then the next one is from Scott Davidson. Affidavit of Scott Davidson. I, Scott Davidson, declare as follows. One, I'm an attorney licensed to practice law in the state of Arkansas and maintain a private practice in Jonesboro, Arkansas. In 1993, I was appointed to represent Damien Eccles in the Circuit Court of Crittenden County, Arkansas. Venue was later changed to the Circuit Court of Craighead County, Arkansas Western District in case number CR 93450 and 450A. Trial was held and Mr. Eccles was found guilty and sentenced to death. 
Two, Val Price, who was also appointed to represent Mr. Eccles' co-counsel, and I have recently become aware of facts not known to us at the time we rep represented Mr. Eccles that, in my opinion, would have dramatically altered the manner in which we conducted investigation, preparation, and presentation of evidence on his behalf. I've been informed that at the time Mr. Eccles was arrested, tried, and sentenced to death in 1993-1994, the Social Security Administration had determined that he was 100% disabled due to mental impairments. Had I known the Social Security Administration had determined Mr. Eccles to be disabled, I would have been alerted to the severity of Mr. Eccles' disability. I am familiar with the significance of Social Security Administration determinations of disability because I've represented clients in matters related to Social Security benefits and disability. Three, had I known of the disability determination, I would have introduced it at relevant stages of the trial. A Social Security finding of disability would have offered objective evidence about the severity of Mr. Eccles' mental impairments at a date well in advance of the criminal proceedings against him. A Social Security Administration finding of disability generally has more credibility than findings in mental health evaluations that are initiated solely as a result of pending legal charges. Based on my experience as a criminal defense attorney, it is my opinion that evidence about the nature and severity of Mr. Eccles' mental disability would have had a reasonable probability of altering the outcome of pretrial proceedings and guilty and penalty phases. The credibility of a Social Security determination would have made a significant impact on the manner in which Mr. Price and I represented Mr. Eccles. I would have been especially concerned about the effect of Mr. Eccles' symptoms of paranoid delusions and hallucinations on his perception, perceptions of his defense team and courtroom proceedings, his decisions about testifying, any waivers he made, and how his symptoms manifested themselves in the years before his arrest. Four, in light of the Social Security determination of mental disability, I would have seriously considered raising the issue of competency. I also would have closely monitored the investigation and preparation of a comprehensive social history to document the nature and effect of Mr. Eccles' mental impairments on his actions. I would have provided the social history to appropriate mental health care, mental health professionals, for them to use in their evaluation of Mr. Eccles. I would have considered the results of the mental health evaluations and social history investigation in determining what evidence to offer to rebut allegations by the government that Mr. Eccles worshiped Satan and thus had, had a motive to kill the victims, to show the prejudice required for successfully seeking a severance, to support a claim that Mr. Eccles was incompetent to stand trial, to select a jury, to challenge the reliability of statements made to law enforcement and late witnesses to establish that Mr. Eccles did not knowingly and voluntarily waive his right to counsel when questioned by law enforcement officers prior to and following his arrest, to advise Mr. Eccles about the risks and benefits of testifying in his own defense, to explain that bizarre and strange specific behaviors and actions by Mr. Eccles were attributable to mental illness rather than volitional acts of Satanism, to challenge the credibility of government witnesses who are unqualified to di differentiate symptoms of mental illness from purported facts of Satanism, and to support the long-standing nature of mitigation factors. Five, because neither Mr. Price nor I was aware of the special Social Security Administration determination that Mr. Eccles was 100% disabled due to mental impairments, the scope of the mental health investigation was limited to penalty phase proceedings. Although I was aware that Mr. Eccles was not normal, I did not know that there was independent objective evidence establishing the severity of Mr. Eccles' impairments, including the symptoms of auditory and visual hallucinations, delusional thinking, and psychotic thought processes. 
2006. Further investigation of the facts surrounding the Social Security Administration determination of disability and presentation of mental health issues at Mr. Eccles' trial would have been consistent with the trial strategy Mr. Price and I adopted, i.e. that Mr. Eccles was innocent and was targeted as the suspect in the homicide because of his strange behavior rather than physical evidence against him. Under the penalty of perjury under the laws of the United States and the state of Arkansas, I swear that the foregoing is true and correct and executed this 16th day of January, 2001, in the county of Craigshead, Scott Davidson. So this affidavit is a, an affidavit by a doctor, a psych, uh, psychiatrist, Dr. George Woods. You can look him up online, but this is dated November 11th, 2001. Interesting date. Uh, and, is, and it's self-explanatory. So it's the affidavit of George W. Woods, M.D., I, George W. Woods, MD, declare as follows. One, I'm a physician licensed to practice in California with a specialty in clinical and forensic psychiatry. I'm a licensed physician specializing in psychiatry and neuropsychiatry. I'm in a private practice focusing on forensic consultations. My business address is P.O. Box 11708, Berkeley, California. I'm up to, I'm a member of the American Psychiatric Association, the California Medical Association, the Northern California Psychiatric Association, the Board of Medical Examiners for the Superior Court of San Francisco, California. I'm also a member of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, the International Academy of Law and Mental Health, as well as a member of the American College of Forensic Psychiatrists. Three, I received my bachelor's degree from Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1969. I received my medical degree from the University of Utah in 1977. I completed my residency at the Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, California in 1981 and participated in a National Institute of Mental Health American Psychiatric Association Fellowship in 1982. I received my board certification in psychiatry and neurology in 1992. I became a diplomate in the American College of Forensic Examiners in 1998. I was the clinical director of the New Beginnings Program at Doctors Hospital in Pinole, California from 1989 to 1994 and senior consulting addictionologist to the New Beginnings Programs at Doctors Hospital in Pinole, California and San Ramon Regional Medical Center, San Ramon, California from 1994 to 1996. I'm currently affiliate professor at the University of Washington Bothell campus. I was adjunct professor at the University of California Davis Medical School, Department of Psychiatry, and the Postgraduate Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship. In that position, I taught courses, courses on criminal responsibility and the trial process. I have lectured both nationally and internationally on issues of criminal responsibility and competency. I'm also in private practice in Oakland, California. I've been a forensic consultant in civil, capital, and appellate proceedings since 1984. I've been qualified and testified as an expert in a number of civil and criminal cases. Referral questions. Counsel for Damien Eccles requested my assistance in the following capacities. A, conduct a comprehensive mental health examination of Mr. Eccles to determine whether Mr. Eccles suffered from mental disease, and if so, whether that disease affected his competency to stand trial during 1993-94. Or B, identify environmental, genetic, and neuropsychiatric factors that may have adversely affected Mr. Eccles' early childhood and adolescent development. C, determine the appropriateness and standard of care of medical and psychiatric treatment received by Mr. Eccles at the Monroe County Jail. D, 
determine whether or not Mr. Eccles was able to provide knowing and rational consent to treatment provided by the Monroe County Jail and E, determine that the effects of treatment administered by the Monroe County Jail on Mr. Eccles' mental status, including whether the type and amount of medication Mr. Eccles received was appropriate. Information relied upon. Six, my medical opinions are based upon the following information. A, clinical interviews of Mr. Eccles I conducted in December 2000. B, Social Security Administration documentation of Mr. Eccles' mental disability. C, transcripts of Mr. Eccles' trial. D, collateral reports of lay witnesses who observed Mr. Eccles' behavior throughout his trial. E, medical records of Mr. Eccles' three psychiatric hospitalizations in the year preceding his arrest. F, Mr. Eccles' writing and correspondence. G, Mr. Eccles' Arkansas Child Protective Services records. H, Mr. Eccles' 1992-1994 East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center records. I, Monroe County jail records of Mr. Eccles' suicide attempt. J, Mr. Eccles' prescription medication records. K, results of psychological and neuropsychological tests administered to Mr. Eccles. And L, other life history documents, including educational and medical records. Seven, the data I reviewed, though by no means inclusive, are clinically significant and are required in order to provide valid and reliable medical and psychiatric opinions. Findings, eight. My findings include the following. A, Mr. Eccles has a serious mental illness characterized by grandiose and persecutory delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, disordered thought processes, substantial lack of insight, and chronic incapacitating mood swings. B, Mr. Eccles' mental illness was established before the offense and subsequent legal proceedings. The Social Security Administration determined that Mr. Eccles was 100% disabled due to mental impairment and granted him full disability benefits. C, Mr. Eccles' mental illness made him incompetent to stand trial. The stress, complexity, and adversarial nature of the trial compounded the effects of his mental illness. He was not able to understand rationally and respond appropriately to the many demands of the prolonged legal proceedings. He could not adequately appreciate or consistently articulate the nature and gravity of the charges against him. He did not understand the role of his counsel and could not assist his counsel or investigators in identifying critical evidence or a viable theory of defense. His grandiose and paranoid delusions left him unable to make rational decisions and grossly distorted his perception of the purpose and possible outcomes of the trial. D, Mr. Eccles' mental status worsened with time. He developed a psychotic euphoria that caused him to believe he would evolve into a superior entity, would be assisted by similar deities, and eventually would be transported to a different world. His psychosis dominated his perceptions of all aspects of the court proceedings. He developed delusions of reference in which he believed every event or moment, regardless of how insignificant, was a potential sign that the deities were attempting to show him the pathway to the other world where he would join other entities like himself. As a result, Mr. Eccles was extremely hypervigilant and anxious, but at the same time completely unable to attend to the critical aspects of his death penalty trial. E. Mr. Eccles has no control over his mental illness, nor did he possess the skills or insight to militate his psychosis or delusions prior or during his trial. His mental illness, combined with his immaturity and the enormous stress of his charges, incarceration, and trial, substantially impaired his perception of reality. Lack of insight, low tolerance for stress, and immaturity are strong characteristic features of chronic mental illness. Mental status examination. Nine. Mr. Eccles presented as a neatly groomed, adequately nourished, healthy man of his stated age. He was oriented to person, place, date, and context of interview. After his confinement on death row at the age of 19, he converted to boot. Buddhism. His appearance was consistent with the traditions of some Buddhist sects. His head was shaved and he wore a necklace made of wooden beads. 
Mr. Eccles was soft-spoken, polite, and cooperative throughout the interview. He consistently appeared to be sincere and to put forth his best effort in all domains of the evaluation. His responses reflected average intelligence. His ability to assimilate new information in his short-term memory were within normal limits. However, there are significant gaps in his long-term memory. 10. Mr. Eccles showed signs of a mood disorder. His effect was generally flat and constricted, although he became animated and more expressive on several occasions. In some instances, his effect did not match his thought content or the content of the interview, but on the whole, those domains were consistent. Mr. Eccles denied persistent hallucinations, but did acknowledge hearing intermittent voices or, or noises. Mr. Eccles' insight, judgment, and thought content appeared to be adequate, although his responses suggested both his insight and judgment continued to be compromised by his mood disorder. He denied fixed delusions and homicidal or suicidal thoughts. 11. During the second day of interviewing, Mr. Eccles had difficulty concentrating, which is consistent with disassociation. He lost his train of thought, and there was marked delay in his responses. When asked what he was experiencing, he said certain questions caused him to relive the experiences being discussed. 12. Mr. Eccles' accounts of his social and medical history were consistent with documentation and collateral interviews. There is a longstanding history of an extremely chaotic and impoverished childhood that thwarted the trajectory of his development and left Mr. Eccles with very low self-esteem and poor coping skills. He lacked adequate nurturing, guidance, and supervision. He was exposed to chronic psychological maltreatment and was unable to retreat from or interpret his, his experiences. He developed symptoms of extreme anxiety at a very young age and had virtually no comp compensatory influences to counteract the damage to his social and emotional development. He was isolated from peers and caring adults who could help him find internal and external resources to restore. 13. Mr. Eccles' accounts of his symptoms since childhood are consistent with severe traumatic stress disorders and mood disorders. He reported periods of disassociation in which he lost long spans of time. He also endorsed numerous physical problems, including frequent severe headaches, for which he was treated with prescription medications as a child, heart palpitations, difficulty breathing. He was diagnosed and treat, for, treated for asthma and chronic sleeping problems. He reported having nightmares from which he awakened in a terrified state as often as twice a night. These symptoms persisted throughout his childhood and adolescence and grew to include periods of psychosis. 14. Mr. Eccles became so debilitated by his escalating mental illness that he was hospitalized three times during the year prior to his arrest for the current offense. His diagnoses included mood disorder, psychosis not otherwise specified, and severe depression. He was evaluated by the Social Security Administration and given full disability benefits on the basis of his mental illness. 15. Mr. Eccles vividly described a course of mood incongruent psychotic features that reached their apex during the stress of his trial and pressure of constant media attention and did not abate until after his confinement on death row. 16. Although he has received no psychiatric treatment on death row, Mr. Eccles stated his mental illness has improved significantly since his incarceration. He attributes this improvement to his structured environment, the enduring support of his wife, who is a touchstone to reality, and is unflaggingly devoted to his best interest and his devout study of Buddhism. Hallucination 17. Prior to and during his trial, Mr. Eccles heard voices that were not really voices, and he was not sure if it was a voice inside his head or somebody else's voice. He thought it was nearly impossible to tell if it was his voice or somebody or something else. He experienced visual hallucinations that were personifications of others. They were like smoke, changing shape, but present and constant. The 
personifications had specific names and activities. One was Morpheus Sandman, who was a hybrid of a human being and a god. Another example was Washington crossing the Delaware. Mr. Eccles saw Washington cross the Delaware with Hermes on the boat. Hermes was able to cross with Washington because Hermes was moving backwards through time. Mr. Eccles came to believe that he was the same as these personifications, made of the same material and from the same place. Delusions. 18. Mr. Eccles stated that at some point in his adolescence, he came to believe he was something that was almost a supreme being that came from a place other people didn't come from. This transformation caused him to change physically, the pertinent changes appearing in his appendages, hands, feet, and hair. He acquired an entirely different bone structure that was not human. He developed stronger senses. His eyesight was better and his ability to smell and taste changed. He had a different stance, moved his eyes, and held his head differently. He grew his nails so that they would be a perfect one inches long. When he looked at his hands, he could see his bones. His weight dropped to 116 pounds, consistent with neurovegetative signs seen in mood disorders. This period of physical change began the year before his arrest and lasted for about two years after he was on death row. Family history. Despite its many problems and limitations, Mr. Eccles' family has remained supportive and concerned for his well-being. They visited him in jail prior to his trial, attended the trial, and have maintained, maintained contact with him since his confinement on death row. They work and live in eastern Arkansas in the community where Mr. Eccles spent the majority of his childhood. 20. The Eccles family appears to have done it done the best it could in the face of enormous adversity. There's evidence of generational poverty, poverty, mental illness, low education and employability, limited problem-solving skills, medical problems, and social alienation. 21. Mr. Eccles' mother, Pamela, was adopted under mysterious circumstances and reared as the only child of her adoptive mother, who was trained as a practical nurse, and her adopted father, who was an illiterate blue-collar worker. When Mr. Eccles' mother began junior high school, she de developed bizarre behavior that intensified as she grew older. She stopped attending high school because, in her words, it made her crazy. She was unable to cope with the stress of school, stopped leaving her home entirely, and received psychiatric treatment. Her adoptive mother was forced to quit work in order to stay home and care for her. Mr. Eccles' mother, Pamela, married Mr. Eccles' father, Joe Hutchison, when she was only 15. 22. Mr. Eccles' mother became pregnant with Mr. Eccles during the first year of her marriage. Due to her age and mental condition, the pregnancy was high risk and marked by numerous complications. According to her, the pregnancy almost killed me. She remained so nauseated and ill that she lost 50 pounds over the course of nine months. Her diet was very poor. She was not well nourished. Her long, high-risk labor necessitated a cesarean section from which she recuperated slowly. 23. Not surprisingly, Mr. Eccles had many problems as an infant and young child. He was fretful and nervous and cried all of the time. His mother could not soothe him, and he slept fitfully for only three or four hours a night. At a very young age, he began to demonstrate troubling behaviors. He repetitively banged his head against the wall and floor until he was three. He was withdrawn as a small child and delayed in meeting his de developmental milestones. He did not walk until approximately 13 months of age, and his speech development was slowed. 24. Following Mr. Eccles' birth, his mother suffered a miscarriage and soon after became pregnant with his younger sister. This, his mother's third pregnancy, was also complicated. Mr. Eccles' mother was not able to care for her two small children, so she sent Mr. Eccles to live with his maternal grandmother. Although Mr. Eccles returned to live with his mother and father, his mother was very dependent on her mother for assistance in caring for Mr. Eccles and later his sister. 
Pamela Eccles was never able to live on her own or care for her children without a great deal of support. She remained dependent on others for guidance and assistance with child rearing. Childhood, 25. Like Mr. Eccles' mother, his father, Joe Hutchison, also appears to have suffered from mental instability. Joe Hutchison was, is uniformly described as immature, self-absorbed, cruel, and capricious. He chronically neglected and abused his family. He berated his wife and son, set unrealistic expectations, called them degrading names, destroyed their most cherished, cherished possessions, terrorized them by threatening to break their bones and hurt them in other ways, and isolated them from community and family support by moving frequently, sometimes impulsively leaving a residence only days or weeks after moving in. On one occasion, he forced his wife to leave her hospital bed to move with him to another city. He found sadistic pleasure in donning horrifying rubber masks of hideous monsters and appearing at his son's bedroom window where he terrified Mr. Eccles by making gruesome noises. In addition, Mr. Hutchison kept his family anxious with his fixation on the notion that others were trying to hurt him. For example, he was convinced people were trying to run him down and constantly harangued his wife and son about the individuals who were trying to kill him. 26. The constant anticipation of psychological and physical violence left Mr. Eccles and his mother chronically aroused and upset. There was no respite from the oppressive environment, and neither mother or child was equipped to deal with Joe Hutchison's increasingly disturbed behavior. Fearing for her life and those of her children, Pamela Eccles finally found the courage to divorce Joe Hutchison in 1986. By that time, the most of the damage was done. 27. Mr. Eccles first recalls being overwhelmed by distressing and terrifying emotions in the second grade when he was positive there was going to be a nuclear war. He believed he had to get back to where something told him he came from before the war started. As he grew older, this obsession evolved into a driving force that consumed him and took up every bit of brain space and brain power. He became convinced that he was an alien from another world, not like any human on Earth. Adolescence 28. In adolescence, Mr. Eccles became frankly suicidal. Unable to find a way out of his depression and hopelessness, he thought the only escape from his constant mental, physical, and emotional pain was to kill himself. Still, he persevered as best he could until, at about the age of 16, his mental illness took a sudden turn for the worst. Mr. Eccles describes feeling disorganized and out of control of his racing thoughts and emotions. He began to laugh hysterically and make other people think I was crazy. For Mr. Eccles, manicness meant everything sped up and became frantic. Others called it hysterical, but Mr. Eccles described it as being driven. When he went crazy, everything sped up. He had no thought process. He could not remember all of the weird things I did, but people would tell him about them later, and he was surprised by his actions. For example, he recalled a time when some kids threw a hamburger up on the ceiling, and he reached up, grabbed it, and ate it. 29. His mania was interspersed with periods of waiting interminably for an abstract thing that might come in the blink of an eye. He was mentally confused and did not know what he was waiting for. Mr. Eccles tried cutting himself to feel different somehow and to see if it would let out some of the pain. He felt worn out. During the one year of high school he attended in the ninth grade, he kept a journal at the instruction of his English teacher. It became more and more abstract. When I when I wrote about one thing, it came out as something else. If I wrote about the moon, I was actually describing the grocery store. 30. Mr. Eccles reported that the intense shift between depression and mania literally drove him me crazy. He remembered that everything hurt from the smell of water to green grass, brown grass. He was exquisitely sensitive to the way people smelled and the smell of water. He described manic episodes when his brain rolled like a TV that is not adjusted. He believed his brain rolled when it rained or when he was near a large body of water. 
The change of seasons had a strong effect on him also, especially fall and winter, and made his brain roll constantly. 31. Mr. Eccles' overwhelming depression and other problems with mood during childhood and adolescence caused disabling disturbances in his emotions, thoughts, and behavior and physical health. His sleep was irregular. He often had no energy to perform the simplest tasks. His thoughts were paralyzing, sluggish, or racing at speeds he could not control. He felt caught in time and thought it was hopeless even to think about feeling better or gaining control over his life. He ruminated about painful memories and insignificant events. He could not concentrate and became easily confused. It was impossible to make even simple decisions. He cried and sobbed all the time without any understanding of what made him so sad. He had no ability to feel joy or pleasure. He became completely inconsolable and isolated, unable to relate to others in any meaningful way. He was inexplicably sensitive to physical sensations and reacted to the slightest changes in his environment. His body hurt when the sun went up or when the sun went down and it rained or when it did not rain. He could not stop or escape from the pain. It became a throb that never went away. He despised himself and felt worthless. He was consumed with shame and despair. 32. Mr. Eccles' mental deterioration spiraled against the backdrop of his unpredictable and troubled home life. His mother's confusion and dependence continued. Within days of divorcing Joe Hutchison, she married Andy Jack Eccles, an illiterate laborer who worked intermittently as a roofer. The family was extremely poor. They found a shack set in the middle of crop fields that were doused with pesticides at regular intervals. The crude dwelling, which had not been used as a residential structure in years, had no plumbing or running water. There was little insulation, poor ventilation, and virtually no privacy. The abject conditions intensified the financial and emotional burdens of the struggling family, but the rent was only $35 per month, so they stayed. Despite the extremely unhealthy conditions, the Eccles remained in the shack for five years. During this time, Mr. Eccles received no mental health treatment or other interventions that would improve his increasing mental disorders. 33. Going from Joe Hutchison to Andy Eccles was like going from the frying pan into the fire. In addition to increased isolation and poverty and being exposed to toxic pesticides, the Department of Human Services DHS records show that Andy Eccles sexually abused Mr. Eccles' younger sister repeatedly until she mustered the courage to report him to her school counselor. DHS intervened and Pamela moved her children out of the shack. Yet that was as much as Pamela Hutchison Eccles was able to do to protect her children from the ravages of poverty, domestic violence, mental illness, and sexual abuse. For no sooner had she separated from Andy Eccles than she, Damien, and his sister moved in with Joe Hutchison, along with Joe Hutchison's own mentally impaired son. The return of Joe Hutchison, whom Mr. Eccles had not seen for years, coincided with Mr. Eccles' first psychiatric hospitalization. 34. Mr. Eccles' mental illness did not improve after his hospitalization. He remained in excruciating emotional pain, betrayed by his mind and body. The world was an unsafe, unpredictable maze from which he desperately looked for an escape. He finally found relief in his own form of medication. He instinctively turned to inhalants and began huffing gasoline. He thought he invented it. Later, he tried marijuana a few times before his arrest, but it did not become a habit. He also used the medication prescribed for his migraine headaches, Medrin, as a means of tolerating stress and fear of attending school. Mr. Eccles' primitive efforts to cope in an internal and external climate of terror ultimately failed. Unable to outrun his terror, he withdrew from school in the ninth grade and tried to insulate himself from the external pressures that contributed to his mental illness. 35. Despite his own often bizarre and disorganized behavior, Mr. Eccles has no history of childhood violence or aggression 
To the contrary, he was ostracized by other children and made the butt of jokes. He pronounced apathy and passivity made him a routine target for cruel jokes. He never resisted these humiliating gestures. On one occasion, several children told him to suck a rock. He responded without question. Another time he was told to walk down a school hallway without shoes, he did so. He was considered odd, different, separate from his cohort. Instead of gaining a sense of efficacy and esteem through interaction with his peers, Mr. Eccles' social experiences reinforced his sense of being damaged and useless. The lack of connection with caring peers and adults who could see and intervene in his many problems likely contributed to his mounting mental illness. 36. The only law enforcement record concerning Mr. Eccles involves minor incidents with his girlfriend's parents. By the age of 16, Mr. Eccles' depression and hopelessness was written all over his body. He wore black clothes, hair, and nails. His strange, often flat, effect kept him out of step with mainstream life in a small Arkansas town. Yet he found one person, a young girl with problems of her own, whom he felt he could under, who could understand him. They developed a relationship and became inseparable. Her parents strongly opposed to their dating and tried to keep them apart. Desperate to stay together, they planned to go to California. Mr. Eccles' mother, overtaxed with her own problems, did not intervene to keep the troubled teenagers near their parents. Instead, she gave them no more than 10 to $15, the only money she had as a contribution towards expenses. No one, not Mr. Eccles, his girlfriend, or Mr. Eccles' mother could foresee the dangers of two teenagers traveling halfway across the country with no money and nowhere to live in California. The ill-fated plan lasted less than 24 hours. The couple went to an abandoned trailer where they planned to spend the night and leave for California the next day. Not long after they arrived, the police arrived and they were arrested. Mr. Eccles was taken to a juvenile facility where he attempted to hang himself. Following their arrest and initial evaluations, both youths were placed in psychiatric hospitals. Psychiatric Treatment, East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center, May 1992. 37. The Arkansas Department of Human Services referred Mr. Eccles for diagnosis and evaluation May 5, 1992, when Mr. Eccles was 17 years old. Following substantiated reports, his stepfather was sexually assaulting his sister. After determining Mr. Eccles was a seriously mentally ill teenager, DHS sent him to East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center, where he was treated until his arrest for the current offense in June 1993. Personnel at 38. Personnel at East Regional East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center described Mr. Eccles as very disturbed. He was withdrawn, spoke little, and rarely had eye contact with anyone. He stared at the wall or cast his eyes downward. He appeared confused and dressed strangely all in black. He was preoccupied with his fingernails, which he filed to points. Concerned about the nature and complexity of his problems, mental health center staff recommended that Mr. Eccles immediately be involuntarily committed to Charter Hospital in Little Rock for more extensive evaluation and treatment. He was transferred on June 1st, 1992, where he remained until June 28th, 1992, when his parents removed him from the hospital. 39. Mr. Eccles was provisionally diagnosed with major depressive disorder, single episode, and medicated with imipramine, an antidepressant drug. Admission notes recorded that Mr. Eccles was a very confused child who felt as if there was no one he can trust. The staff psychiatrist who conducted a mental status exam upon admission described the 17-year-old as cooperative and polite with an odd stare and flat effect. The psychiatrist also noted Mr. Eccles was quiet, hesitant when answering some questions, and appeared as though some of the questions were somewhat difficult or bothered to him to answer. Additionally, Mr. Eccles demonstrated lack of concentration, poor judgment, and absolutely no insight into his illness or ability to effectively problem-solve. The psychiatrist had major concerns that this young man was exhibiting disturbed, bizarre, and unusual thinking. 40. 
Mr. Eccles' delusional thinking was evident throughout his hospitalization. He explained that he had no feelings about suicide because he thought he could be reincarnated. He indicated to others that he thought he possessed special powers. A social worker reported Mr. Eccles appeared to be sniffing the air around him as if he were responding to an external stimulus. He smiled inappropriately and cut his eyes in one direction or the other as if he were hearing or thinking of something before he spoke. The social worker concluded that he was responding to an outside stimulation and may have been experiencing auditory hallucinations. Visual hallucinations may have also been present. Mr. Eccles said he thought the furniture in the psychiatric unit was causing blurred, blurred vision. 41. Mr. Eccles exhibited a bizarre and unusual manner of adjustment to the psychiatric unit that was also reflected in his bizarre and unusual thinking pattern. He was preoccupied with witchcraft, but consistently denied any involvement with satanic worship. He was observed meditating in his room in a bizarre and unusual fashion, wrote some very unusual poems, and remained on the peripheral of the group throughout his hospitalization. He made unusual and bizarre sounds with his mouth that sounded like a cat purr. He had trouble making eye contact and was quite paranoid. He told staff there were surveillance cameras behind his mirror and under his desk and cautioned other adolescent patients that staff were constantly watching them. Staff observed him sitting and rocking methodically back and forth, daydreaming and staring into space. When interrupted, he appeared startled. He wanted to calm down and said he was feeling jittery, jittery internally. Hospital staff noted he showed no aggressive behavior in the hospital. 42. Mr. Eccles' behavior demonstrated a pervasively depressed mood throughout most of his hospitalization. He withdrew from family and friends, had sad facial expression, and spent long intervals alone. He lost interest in eating, had difficulty going to sleep, and planned ways to commit suicide. He repeatedly thought about wrapping the sheet from his bed around his neck and trying to hang himself. 43. Mr. Eccles' psychiatric care was interrupted by his parents who removed him from the hospital June 25, 1992, and moved to Oregon. His discharge diagnosis was major depression, single episode, dysthemia, and rule out psychotic disorder not otherwise specified. He was instructed to continue taking 150 milligrams of imipramine daily. Vincent Hospital, St. Vincent Hospital, Oregon, September 2nd to 4th, 1992. 44. Mr. Eccles' mental illness wor worsened after his release from Charter Hospital. Within two weeks of moving to Oregon with his family, he was voluntarily admitted to St. Vincent Hospital in Portland after his parents observed extremely bizarre behavior that was unresponsive to outside influence. Mr. Eccles and his family have different memories of the events surrounding Mr. Eccles' admission to St. Vincent's Hospital. Mr. Eccles recalled being very depressed and unable, unable to stop crying for quite some time. He was disoriented from the move and homesick for Arkansas. He had no recollection of threatening to harm himself or others. His father, however, informed staff that Mr. Eccles had been sniffing gas and that the dinner table he had talked about drinking a bottle of bleach. 45. As, as had staff members at Charter Hospital, those at St. Vincent consistently described Mr. Eccles as quiet, compliant, and non-combative. The admitting diagnoses were psychotic disorder, not otherwise specified, dysthemia, depression, and suicidal ideation. However, within 48 hours, these diagnoses were changed to adjustment disorder of adolescence with disturbance of conduct, whereupon Mr. Eccles was discharged to his parents with instructions to continue taking 150 milligrams of imipramine. Despite two psychiatric hospitalizations within six weeks, Mr. Eccles' parents allowed the disturbed 17-year-old to return to Arkansas. The family met him at the hospital upon his discharge and gave him cash for a taxi to take him directly to the bus station. He traveled alone by bus to West Memphis, 
Charter Hospital, Little Rock, September 14th to 20th, 1992. 46. Mr. Eccles was completely incapable of caring for himself when he returned to Arkansas. He had no money, and his mental illness and lack of skills and experience prevented him from working. He lived on the streets and even stayed at the home of his abusive stepfather, Andy Eccles, a few nights. Within days, he was identified by his probation officer, who believed that Mr. Eccles should be treated in a long-term residential psychiatric facility. The probation officer had Mr. Eccles detained in the juvenile facility for violating his parole by returning to Arkansas. Staff and residents at the facility described Mr. Eccles as losing touch with reality. His behavior deteriorated drastically. One resident reported he observed Mr. Eccles sucking the blood off the scratch that another inmate had on his arm. Mr. Eccles was placed in isolation and on suicide watch. The juvenile facility quickly obtained a court order and sent Mr. Eccles to Charter Hospital for the purpose of determining the appropriate method of referral to a residential treatment facility. Mr. Eccles was readmitted to Charter Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas on September 4th, 14th, 1992, where he remained until his discharge on December 20, September 22nd, 1992. 47. The provisional diagnoses at Charter Hospital were psychotic disorder, not otherwise specified, and dysthemia. Staff members immediately noticed Mr. Eccles' bizarre behavior, including his growling and making other strange sounds. A social worker described Mr. Eccles' behavior as odd and reported that he smiled at inappropriate times, cut his eyes back and forth, and seemed to be giggling at something that he was saying. 48. Mr. Eccles also had noticeable problems with attention and concentration. He stared off into space and daydreamed in class and group activities. When staff members attempted to bring him back to the task at hand, he would then act like he was very startled, as if jolted back into the group process. 49. Other serious problems noted by staff members include alteration in thought processes evidenced by delusional thinking and inappropriate social behavior. His appearance was disheveled and unkempt and he had consistently poor eye contact. He dressed in entirely black clothing, frequently wrote poems, and drew pictures of symbols, which one staff member erroneously interpreted as closely associated with devil worship. Mr. Eccles stated that he was a witch, not a vampire or devil worshiper. 50. Mr. Eccles' mood disturbances continued unabated. His effect was extremely flat. He showed absolutely no observable, observable evidence of emotion, and he appeared anxious and uncomfortable. Charter hospital records reflect that Mr. Eccles had almost no insight into the nature and severity of his problems. Like all other staff who observed Mr. Eccles over time, he was described by Charter mental health staff as calm, compliant, and cooperative. A, psychi a psychiatrist noted that even though Mr. Eccles had difficulty with reality, testing, he related in a very quiet and withdrawn fashion, and it was actually quite pleasant. 52. Mr. Eccles was discharged from Charter Hospital on September 28, 1992, with diagnoses of psychotic disorder not otherwise specified and dysthemia. He was released to the care of his stepfather, Andy Eccles, who lived in West Memphis, Arkansas. Mr. Eccles was instructed to con continue to take his daily dose of 150 milligrams of imipramine and report to the local mental health center for follow-up care. 53. There is an abundance of evidence to show that Mr. Eccles' serious mental illness required long-term hospitalization and more aggressive treatment than he received in prior hospitalizations. In January of 1993, Mr. Eccles again sought help at East Arkansas Mental Health Center, where mental health professionals described Mr. Eccles' elaborate history of delusions, psychosis, and severe problems with mood and memory. His delusion, delusions were often grandiose. He told staff he was going to influence the world. He also reported he obtained power by drinking blood. His mood oscillated between euphoria and severe depression. 
Most of the time, his effect was flat and his face expressionless. Other times, he reported he could do anything. During his worst episodes, Mr. Eccles became psychotic. He felt the spirit was living within him and was put inside him last year. The spirit decided to become part of him and the spirit, and was the spirit of a woman who was killed by her husband. Despite his pronounced history of multiple forms of trauma, there was only one reference in the records about how traumatic experiences affected Mr. Eccles. The symptoms associated with trauma are described as substantial periods of impaired memory consistent with a dissociative response to trauma. Though profoundly mentally ill, Mr. Eccles always responded well to the structure of a therapeutic setting. He has never been a management problem, and staff members uniformly describe him as passive, compliant, and likable. 54. Although he was only 18 years old, mental health professionals at East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center concurred that Mr. Eccles' severe and enduring mental illness made him unable to function without substantial assistance from mental health and other agencies. Staff members assisted Mr. Eccles in applying for Social Security Disability Benefits through the Social Security Administration, or SSA. After conducting an independent evaluation, the SSA determined that Mr. Eccles was 100% disabled and was awarded full disability benefits on the basis of his mental illness. The finding by the Social Security Administration of a mental disability is a significant factor that any competent mental health professional will consider in an objective determination of Mr. Eccles' mental state. At the time of arrest and trial, Mr. Eccles was still considered severely mentally impaired by the SSA and was receiving full SSA disability benefits. Arrest and trial. 55. Mr. Eccles' abject mental illness, which began in late childhood and early adolescence, is abundantly documented in mental health and state agency records, evaluations, and collateral accounts that well precede the offense. The many diagnoses and unsuccessful treatment efforts indicated virulent disease that required long-term intervention and careful follow-up care, which Mr. Eccles did not receive. As a result, Mr. Eccles remained mentally ill at the time of his arrest in June of 1993 and throughout the time he was awaiting trial. His perception, judgment, and behavior were grossly distorted by paranoid and grandiose delusions, delusions of reference and hallucinations. He believed his arrest was an omen that supernatural entities would soon arrive to transport him to another world where he, he could live among beings like himself who could understand and accept him. Far from being able to appreciate the grave charges against him, Mr. Eccles believed his arrest signified his imminent metamorphosis and ultimate liberation. He described visual and auditory hallucinations. The beings communicated with him, often through the words and actions of others, and revealed themselves to him through a series of elaborate scenes that included a host of eerie and dour characters. Mr. Eccles' thought disorder prevented him from making sense and meaningfully participating in the complex tasks involved in preparing his murder trial. He had no understanding of the complex and painstaking process involved in identifying and developing a viable theory of defense or defeating the prosecution's case. He was not able to assist his attorneys in developing a comprehensive investigative plan and cannot assess strategies of jury selection, opening statements, direct and cross-examination, and closing arguments. His problems with memory and concentration and his preoccupation with being transported to another world prevented him from providing critical life history information that was essential for the penalty phase of his trial. Rather than assisting in his defense, Mr. Eccles spent his time touching each brick in his cell to find the secret passage to the other world. 56. It is undisputed that unmanageable stress exacerbates psychosis. Mr. Eccles' behavior during trial is completely consistent with the course of psychosis in the presence of constant stress. Cameras in the courtroom, reporters, and the constant flurry of activity 
lack of predictability, and general hostility directed toward him all contributed to Mr. Eccles' tenuous contract with reality. He was confused and hypervigilant. He saw every stimulus as a potential vehicle to the other world. For example, he believed the courtroom itself and any person, regardless how super, superfluous their role in the legal process or event, as a possible sign of his impending journey to the other world. He was inundated with overwhelming sights, sounds, smells, and behaviors, but lacked any ability to discern accurately the meaning of the events around him. As the trial wore on and pressure mounted, Mr. Eccles became increasingly despondent that he had not been transported to the world his entities had promised him. He blamed himself and desperately increased his efforts to find the key that would allow him to be with those like himself. His magical obsession with finding a passage to the other world kept him constantly aroused and alert, but with a distorted and myopic view of the activities around him. Fifty-seven. As Mr. Eccles' anxiety and delusions increased, he became less and less able to attend to or accurately understand the legal process that held his life in the balance. He reported that his mind was always in that place, the place that was the gateway. His delusions were most pervasive and virulent when he testified. He believed his testimony was the portal to the other world. He reported it was worse on the stand. I thought this must be the summit, the culmination. Somehow this was the moment when whatever happened, it is happens. His attention was consumed by the notion of, a of his transition. He searched in vain for a divine sign that it was happening. Every nerve cell was poised for this cataclysmic event. Nearly everything he saw or heard was incorporated into his delusion. For example, he perceived the cameras used by the media and the HBO film crew as a sign of his imminent transition. All his judgments and decisions were based 100% on being ready for the others, the entities to whom he belonged, and would soon join. 58. Mr. Eccles' thinking at the time of his trial appears to have been disorganized and delusional in all domains. Despite his entrenched belief that he would be transported to another world, he married his pregnant girlfriend who subsequently gave birth to his son. This unusually joyous event instead became another vehicle for Mr. Eccles' complex delusions. His reaction to his son's birth reflects psychotic thinking and lack of contact with reality. Notes Mr. Eccles wrote about his son are consistent with psychosis. Quote, I found out my son was born. The spirits won't leave me alone. They surround me constantly. I think the baby stole my soul. I saw my son for the first time yesterday. Something happened when I looked at him. I don't think it was, I was supposed to see him. 59. Jail records reflect that Mr. Eccles was administered 150 milligrams of imipramine daily and by non-medically trained jail personnel during the nine months of his pretrial incarceration and throughout his trial. However, the records do not include a consent form for medication signed by Mr. Eccles and a witness. Medical standards of care set, por set forth by the American Medical Association require that all patients be fully informed about the possible risks and benefits of recommended medical treatments, as well as alternative treatments available to the patient and their right to decline medical treatment altogether. Informed consent requires the capacity to weigh options rationally about the risks and benefits of various treatments. There is no indication in Mr. Eccles' jail record that he was provided pertinent information regarding the medications he was taking or whether he was evaluated to determine if he possessed the requisite me mental faculties to make a reasoned decision regarding his treatment. 60. Moreover, there is no documentation that Mr. Eccles received any medical supervision or periodic evaluations while he was taking 
imipramine during his pretrial incarceration and trial. The administration of a prescription drug without medical supervision is a serious breach of national standards of care set forth by the American Medical Association. Psychiatrists and other physicians licensed to practice medicine and prescribe medications are required to monitor their patients regularly to evaluate the clinical side effects of medications, determine whether a change of medication is indicated, and assess other medical problems that could influence the eff efficacy of previously prescribed drugs. 61. Neither do jail records document within a reasonable degree of medical certainty that the medication Mr. Eccles received prior to and during his trial was appropriate for the nature and severity of his psychiatric disorders. Indeed, imipramine, the antidepressant Mr. Eccles was given daily for a year, at least a year prior to and during his trial, is contraindicated for the signs and symptoms of his mental illness. Imipramine is a tricyclic antidepressant used primarily for the treatment of depression but has been shown to significantly increase the risk of mania and hypomania. In other words, imipramine can expand the symptoms of depression to include manic episodes. Manic episodes like severe depression can include psychotic features in which the patient develops delusions and intermittently or completely loses contact with reality. Adolescents who suffer from depression are especially vulnerable to negative side effects of imipramine, including confusion, anxiety, drowsiness, dizziness, sedation, excitation, headaches, nervousness, and weakness. Mr. Eccles reported several of these symptoms, including confusion, drowsiness, dizziness, and weakness during a clinical interview. In addition, he described in writing feeling weak and drowsy, suffering from headaches, and having vivid and disturbing dreams during his trial. 62. Mr. Eccles' thought processes and behavior prior to and during trial are consistent with mania. An investigator who interviewed Mr. Eccles weekly observed unpredictable mood swings, ranging from abysmal depression and hopelessness to rapturous feelings of omnipotence. These intense changes in mood and effect appeared unrelated to external influences and were far out of proportion to environmental events. Equally significant, Mr. Eccles seemed to have no insight into the cause of his emotional storms and was unresponsive to to support reassurances or efforts to place the experiences in an understandable context. 63. The increase in Mr. Eccles' psychiatric symptoms before and during trial may in large part be attributable to the combination of the inadequate diagnosis of his condition, combined with the lack of psychiatric monitoring by qualified mental health professionals and improper medication. Had Mr. Eccles been evaluated, diagnosed, and treated within the guidelines outlined by the American Medical Association, and had he received the correct combination of medications, he likely would have been far more capable of acting in his own best interest, which in turn could have had a positive influence on the outcome of his trial. 64. Mr. Eccles' mental health was in a precipitous state of decline well before his trial began. His mood swings intensified and his mania and depression became life-threatening. On June 9, 1993, he tried to kill himself by taking an overdose of imipramine because he believed this would allow him to be transported to the other place. He was taken from the jail to a local hospital where he remained less than 24 hours. When he was returned to jail, Mr. Eccles did not receive follow-up care from a psychiatrist or other licensed physician, nor was he placed on suicide precaution or in a special housing unit for mentally ill inmates. 65. <clears throat> Mr. Eccles' significant history of mental illness and hospitalizations are supported by contemporaneous journals and missives he wrote before and during his, during his trial. These documents memorialize in vivid detail disabling delusions, hallucinations, and gross distortions of reality. The structure and quality of his writing provide insight into the nature and depth of his paranoia. His experience of himself and others is replete with irrational fear, distrust, confusion, and a pronounced lack of insight regarding his mental illness. For example, 
he believed he was, quote, doing something to the he believed someone was, quote, doing something to the food and putting some kind of gas in the vents and thought someone was doing something to his medicine, unquote. Signs and symptoms of Mr. Eccles' mental illness also include depersonalization and derealization, consistent with dissociative experiences. He did not recognize his physical appearance. He hallucinated that his hands and feet are changing and believed his body was being transformed from a human being to a superior being, Christ. He saw these changes as signs of his inevitable metamorphosis and followed command hallucinations to ready himself for this life-changing event. He expressed frustration at having to take his medication because he believed it was preventing his transition. Quote, I can see my phys- I can see physical changes happening in my body. I can tell it's getting ready. The abominations have already begun to spit forth from the earth. I have seen some of them. I will become one soon. My body is changing, but that medicine is making it happen a lot more slowly than normal. I'm outgrowing my skin. I'm eating packs of sugar and Kool-Aid to give my body the extra energy it needs to make its change. Soon people will be able to know I am the Christ just by looking at me, unquote. Mood swings are also evident in Mr. Eccles' writing. He described longstanding depressions beginning in early childhood that alternated with manic episodes accompanied by grandiose delusions. He writes, quote, I had a very sad and depressing childhood. I, always, I was always sad for no apparent reason. I cried constantly. Once I cried for about three hours when everything hit me all at once, it made me so sad that I knew I would ever reach one of those high spots again. I always knew I was different from all other children. I could always tell that my thought process was different. I always thought other children were crazy or stupid. I knew ever since I was really young that I was destined for greatness. At first, I thought maybe I was an alien. I don't know why. It just seemed natural, unquote. Mr. Eccles oscillated between grandiose, paranoid, and persecutory delusions of such proportion and duration that he was unable to understand consistently or meaningfully participate in proceeding against him. Quote, I was the god of the new aeon and that no one could ever touch me. Slay myself, but I will be back. I will rise again in three days, just like the first god. The trial against me is the beginning of an apocalypse and the war will start in 94. The world ends in 96. The new messiah, unquote. Mr. Eccles became obsessed with his grandiose and persecutory delusions and began to demonstrate delusions of reference as well. Quote, everyone stared at me like I was some kind of freak. Everyone knew I didn't belong there. They hate me because God hates me because he knows I can beat him. So he tries to kill me every chance he gets. They don't understand they can't beat me and God still tries everything he can to kill me, but he can't. Death can't stop me. I would be the only third person in history to raise from the dead. Lazarus, Jesus Christ, Damien. I will prove it very soon. They think I don't know they're watching me. I think they think I don't know about the spies and bugs. I do. I've got spies too. Unquote. <clears throat> Mr. Eccles wrote about the visual and auditory hallucinations dating to childhood and continuing throughout the trial. Quote, I remember when I was very young. One night I woke up, there was someone in my bed. It scared me so bad I couldn't even move. When I snapped out of it, I jumped out of bed and ran to my mother's room. I told her and she went to my room and looked. She said there was nobody there. She said there was no way someone could have gotten in without her knowing it. I can remember one night when I was a little older and woke up to see a man standing in my room. It paralyzed me. I wouldn't even blink because I knew as soon as I opened my eyes, he would be right in my face. I guess later I must have passed out because the next thing I knew it was the next morning. No one believed me. I thought people may be right. I had changed my mind one night when there was an old man in my room. I thought if I ignored him, he would go away. But when I looked again, he was right in front of me. He licked my hand and said, does that feel like a dream to you? He talked for a while of things that aren't important yet, unquote. 
The hallucination of the old man was a recurring theme in Mr. Eccles' writings. Mr. Eccles saw and heard the old man and believed him to be an integral part of Mr. Eccles' transformation. Quote, this morning when I woke up, my eyes were stuck open. I must have slept that way. My heart was beating so hard it was vibrating in my head. I went to hell. It was not a dream. I was really there. It wasn't that bad. The old man took me there. He's my constant companion now. My new name is Baal Basath. We are leaving soon now, unquote. Another apparition Mr. Eccles wrote about was Rosie, a superior being who took Mr. Eccles on somewhere every night. Now, Rosie put Mr. Eccles, quote, in a horse. It felt so good to just run and run. I never wanted to stop. He said, we'll do lots of fun things from now on. He says he has to show me a lot of stuff before October. He told me not to worry about any what anything anybody says to me or does, unquote. Mr. Eccles was so plagued with hallucinations, delusions, and dissociative symptoms that his health suffered during the trial. Quote, Every, everything is wrong here. Having a nervous breakdown. Today I have a splitting headache. I feel like I got a hangover. It's because Rosie won't let me sleep that much. I don't feel very well today. I'm getting sick. Every time me and Rosie do something, it makes me really sleepy and hungry. I even got a nosebleed, unquote. The combination of these factors prevented Mr. Eccles from assisting his attorneys with even the simplest tasks. He could not comprehend or evaluate the quickly unfolding events or make rational decisions in his own best interests. The burden was overwhelming and the results disastrous, contemporaneous lay witness descriptions. 75. <clears throat> Mr. Eccles' mental health history, behavior born out before and after during a trial, and contemporaneous writings are completely consistent with collateral descriptions of his mental status before and during the trial. Numerous lay witnesses who knew Mr. Eccles over time observed that he was not in touch with reality frequently during their visits with him in the jail and the courtroom. They gave several examples, examples of Mr. Eccles' disturbed mental state. Mr. Eccles' stepfather, Andy Eccles, reported that when Mr. Eccles asked questions, was asked questions, his answers did not make any sense. His biological father found Mr. Eccles so upset and depressed that Mr. Eccles did not seem to know what was going on. All family members noted that Mr. Eccles was losing a lot of weight, a con common symptom of both major depression and mania. 76, Glory Shettles, an investigator, had the most contact with Mr. Mr. Eccles before and during Eccles' trial. She described Mr. Eccles' episodic loss of contact with reality, his pervasive problems with attention and concentration, his inability to discern the significance of the events, his lack of insight into the nature of his mental illness, his unpredictable and rapid mood swings, and paranoid beliefs in general mental decline. Ms. Shettles met with Mr. Eccles at least once a week during his pre-trial incarceration and numerous times during pre-trial and trial proceedings. Ms. Shettles witnessed Mr. Eccles' dramatic mood swings from deep sobbing to laughing hysterically and giggling without any cause for the change. She reported that he cried during almost every meeting, sometimes collapsing onto her shoulders in utter despair that was beyond the legal situation. His depression had been with him a long time and it affected everything he thought and did. 77. According to Ms. Shettles, Mr. Eccles was not able to maintain an active interest in legal developments and was so crippled by depression he could not be motivated to help his own defense. He discussed suicide repeatedly as a means of relief, but at the same time believed he could overcome death because he was different than people. 78. Ms. Shettles corroborated the grandiose and perverse persecutory delusions described in Mr. Eccles' writing and medical records. <clears throat> Quote, he believed he was an outsider whom no, no one could relate. He believed he was an alien and disgusted with his mother from the time he was a small child of only three or four. It was not an analogy. It was a concrete belief that he was from another world, another planet. He was consumed with the belief that he was not of this world and talked about it at every opportunity. I'm going to skip to bullet point 80. So 80, 
Mr. Eccles has been evaluated on three separate occasions by three different psychologists, each of whom administered a battery of tests. A prominent feature of each evaluation was the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or MMPI, which was administered on June 8, 1992, September 2, 1992, and February 20, 1994. The independent test results were quite consistent. All revealed valid profiles and strong indications of depression, mania, severe anxiety, delusions, and psychosis. 81. Test results for the June 8, 1992 MMPI reflected elevations on scores of psychotic thinking, including hallucinations, paranoid ideation, and delusions, as well as severe anxiety and other related emotional disturbances. The suggested diagnoses were schizophrenia, disorganized type, and bipolar disorder manic. Individual responses on this test revealed that Mr. Eccles was afraid of losing his mind, had bizarre thoughts, and had very peculiar experiences. Three months later, on September 2nd, 1992, a second MMPI was administered. The test results very closely paralleled the findings of the earlier MMPI. Shortly before Mr. Eccles' trial began in 1994, he was administered the MMPI a third time for the purpose of identifying mitigating evidence. Like the other two, this MMPI revealed psychotic thought processes consistent with schizophrenia. Specific indicators of a thought disorder included mental confusion, persecutory ideas, acute anxiety, and depressed suicidal ideation. 82. I have also consulted with Karen B. Froming, PhD, a board-certified neuropsychologist who administered a battery of neuropsychological tests to Mr. Eccles to determine whether Mr. Eccles suffers from brain damage or deficits that would affect his medical or psychological status. The results of this battery, which are consistent with all three MMPIs, suggest that Mr. Eccles suffers from a severe long-term mood disorder that affects his perception, judgment, and behavior. The battery also revealed Mr. Eccles' IQ score to be substantially higher than his score on tests administered immediately prior to trial. Given Mr. Eccles' history of mental illness beginning in childhood and the enormous stress he bore as a result of his arrest and trial, the best explanation for the difference in IQ scores is the effects of delusions, hallucinations, psychotic depression, lack of sleep, and mania. These factors can compromise his actual intellectual abilities by interfering with his attention, concentration, memory, and problem-solving skills. 83. <clears throat> I also reviewed the 13-page transcript of a post-trial competency hearing held March 11, 1996. It appears from the transcript that no mental health professional examined, examined Mr. Eccles for competency prior to the post-trial competency hearing, nor testified about Mr. Eccles' substantial history of psychiatric illness. It also appears that neither counsel nor the court was aware of three significant factors that were relevant to determining Mr. Eccles' competency. One, Mr. Eccles' well-established history of major mental illness, including the determination by the Social Security Administration that he was mentally disabled. Two, the psychiatric symptoms he manifested during trial proceedings. And three, the deleterious effects of the psychiatric symptoms, especially his delusional beliefs and hallucinations on his ability to understand legal proceedings and aid and assistant counsel. 84, the hearing is bereft of any testimony or evidence by any mental health professional about Mr. Eccles' mental function, functioning. No mental health professional examined Mr. Eccles, administered appropriate diagnostic tests, or reviewed his symptom complex to determine if he were competent. At a minimum, any competency evaluation must be conducted by a mental health professional with experience and training in forensic evaluations. The evaluating mental health professional must first determine if Mr. Mr. Eccles suffers from a mental disease or defect well-documented in Mr. Eccles' history. The evaluating mental health professional must then take into account whether and how symptoms, such as those manifested by Mr. Eccles, impair specific competence-related abilities. 85. 
The transcript of the hearing makes no reference to any information from sources traditionally relied upon to address mental state at the time of trial. No mention is made of numerous documents and records that establish Mr. Eccles' considerable psychiatric history, including the following. One, determination by the SSA that Mr. Eccles was disabled due to mental impairments. Two, records of three psychiatric hospitalizations within the year prior to arrest. Outpatient treatment in the area of mental health center and social service agency investigation into Mr. Eccles' family. Three, jail records documenting Mr. Eccles' suicide attempt. Four, unsupervised administration of psychotropic medication during trial. These medical records detail Mr. Eccles' delusions, hallucinations, mood disorder, traumatic history, and paranoia. These records serve to alert a competent mental health examiner to symptomatology that first adversely affected Mr. Eccles' competency-related abilities. 86. No testimony was introduced from layer expert witnesses about their observations of Mr. Eccles' bizarre behavior during his trial. At the time of Mr. Eccles' trial, he was visited by members of his family frequently and in a defense investigator weekly. Their observations reported above demonstrate the manner in which Mr. Eccles' psychiatric symptoms interfered with his rational and logical thought processes. His contemporaneous writings, some of which were provided to a defense, defense investigator, also offer evidence of how his grandiose and paranoid delusions and elaborate auditory visual hallucinations distorted his understanding of the legal proceeding as legal proceedings against him. These observations and writings are relevant to any determination about Mr. Eccles' competency. 87. Mr. Eccles testified briefly during the hearing and answered questions by his counsel in the court. None of the questions and answers was sufficient to establish a basis for concluding that Mr. Eccles was competent or incompetent at the time of trial or at the time of the post-trial hearing. Many of the questions, particularly those asking Mr. Eccles about trial and appeal materials, were not followed to demonstrate that he had read the materials. None of the questions asked of Mr. Eccles can approximate a mental status examination by an appropriately trained and experienced mental health professional. A critical part of any competency evaluation is the mental status examination. The mental status examination is a systematic inquiry into current mental functioning. It is a standard interview technique that probes specifically for signs and symptoms of mental illness. Mental status examinations commonly involve brief tests and queries about orientation and reports of recent subjective symptoms. Responses in a mental status examination are used to assess current cognitive and emotional functioning. None of the questions put to Mr. Eccles by counsel in the court probe for signs and symptoms of Mr. Eccles' mental illness, nor even asked about symptoms. The questions and answers did not offer adequate data to support inferences about Mr. Eccles' mental status. The questions offered no psychiatric utility and should not be relied upon to assess Mr. Eccles' competency-related abilities. The questions also did not attempt to manifest any understanding Mr. Eccles might have had of the proceedings. 88. The information contained in the transcript of the hearing is insufficient to support a finding concerning Mr. Eccles' competency at the time of trial. It failed to take into account how Mr. Eccles' severe psychiatric symptoms affected his competency. Conclusions. Prior to and during his murder trial, Damien Eccles suffered from a severe psychiatric disorder characterized by enduring delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, and severe mood swings ranging from suicidal depression to extreme mania. Ample evidence documents the catastrophic impact of these distressing symptoms on Mr. Eccles' grasp of reality and his perception of the events around him. His pervasive delusions and psychosis undermined his understanding of the implications of the charges against him, grossly distorted his perception of events in and out of the courtroom, and compromised his relationship with his lawyers. At the time of his trial, the nature and severity of Mr. Eccles' multiple psychiatric illnesses 
left him unable to rationally understand rationally the nature of the legal proceedings against him and to aid and assist counsel in a rational and factual manner. I declare under penalty of perjury under the laws of the United States of America and the state of California that the foregoing is true and correct. Executed this day, February 2001 at Pinole, California, George W. Woods, M.D.